Greetings in Jesus' name, and I mean that, and I'm glad to be here, and I mean that. Um, Our brother's right, though, sometimes we're not always quite as sincere as we ought to be. The brother who gave the devotional, I think we'd have been well served if he could have just took the rest of the time. Uh, Just in the past week... I listened to a story, it was a made-up story, something speculating and how the spirit world works. But in that story, I'm pretty sure that's where I heard it. And now I'm going to talk about something I don't know what I'm talking about, which is dangerous, because I'm not a scientist. But something was said to the effect of that science and what it can measure and perceive and know for sure is working with about 6% of the matter that exists. All the rest of it, dark matter and other things that I don't know how to talk about, they still don't even know how to properly measure and perceive. God's probably out there in part. Uh, I know he's out there, but maybe they're perceiving a little bit of him and don't know how to deal with it. The reason I mentioned that was because one of the things that really dampens our ability to take a hold of the opportunities God gives us is our tendency to be so impressed with technology and the things that man can do and to fail to lay hold on what God can do. I was really impressed with this song, just re Read the last two stanzas. Vain his ambition. That's talking about man. Noise and show. Vain are the cares which rack his mind. He heaps up treasure mixed with woe and dies and leaves them all behind. Oh, be a noble portion mine, my God, I bow before thy throne. Earth's fleeting treasure I resign and fix my hopes on thee alone. What tremendous thoughts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we enter into the time of this message, I ask Thee to open our understanding, to glorify Yourself, teach our hearts, uh, inspire us, help us to turn our affections away from the beggarly abilities of men, to fasten our heart and love and desire upon You, O God our Maker, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Judge, and our Savior. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So my assigned subject tonight is making the most of an opportunity. And I realize that probably in focus about this thing of opportunity is our society of United States and Canada, our freedom, our wealth, our abilities of transportation, logistics, and all those things, and, and how we can make the most of them. But I had sitting there, I had to think, who has the most opportunity for the kingdom? A Chinese man persecuted for his faith, but where the power seems to be overflowing or us who are trying to deal with these folks out here that don't really want to hear any of it many times. And so it's, it's sort of relative. I think the whole thing comes down to, am I co-laboring with God? 
He didn't make me a Chinese, and I don't know if there's any here tonight or not. And we're definitely not in China. So we're where we're at, given the opportunities that God is giving us. And I'd like to say tonight that when we think about working with what God gives us, working within the opportunities that He puts in our path, in the true sense of, I, I hope the opportunity we're talking about here is not my projects, it's not the things that we decide we want to do, and we treat God like a supermarket where now I've got this, this thing I want to bake or this thing I want to make, and so I'm going to go to the department store or the supermarket, and I'm going to purchase what I need, and then I'm going to do my thing. That's not the way God works, folks. God... Uh, made us and bought us. We belong to Him. It's our business to get into His program. It's His opportunity. It's His business. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to begin to read with verse 9, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. And so this passage teaches us that we are laborers with God. Uh, we're something that God's doing. Uh, we're to be in his program, and Jesus Christ is foundational. And I, I want to make clear that he's not only foundational as Savior, and our introduction into the body of Christ and into the kingdom of God, but he is, he is the standard, and he's the life, he's the energy, he's, he's, the, he's the defining values of the spiritual building that we're striving to build. And it matters the quality of the work we do. And the quality does not depend upon my professionalism or my abilities, but how well I co-labor with God so that God finally does the work. As I labor with God, with people, that finally God can do in another person that which He's done in me and more, even if they weren't born into an Anabaptist family. And so our goal is that in this spiritual house, the house of God, the kingdom of God, 
that as we co-labor with God, there is being erected in the kingdom gold and silver and precious stones. Now, I was given some notes, some guidelines for this message, and one of the suggestions was Nehemiah. And so I'm going to do that tonight. By the grace of God, we're going to take an old passage, Old Testament passage, personage, Nehemiah, and we're going to, from the life of Nehemiah and his experiences, take a look at what it what it means, what it's like in shoe leather to build gold, silver, and precious stones in the kingdom of God, which to me is making the most of the opportunity of my life and yours. So if you'll turn to the book of Nehemiah, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time in this message in the Word of God. This this man... I'm not sure why we don't talk about him even more than we do, because he is one of the amazing characters of of the Bible. Uh, A man who, in some ways very similar to Daniel, was elevated to high position in the Babylonian kingdom. Well, it may have been Persian by then, I don't know, I, I didn't research that. But in that series of kingdoms there, he was the king's cupbearer. The direct access to the highest visages of power of that day. But very obvious to me that he was wholehearted for God. Without knowing the details of his life, I can tell you that Nehemiah made many, many smaller right choices that were God-directional choices. Uh, he didn't defile his life with the king's meat. He, he didn't choose to become an idolater for convenience sake. He stayed true to Jehovah God. And we'll read here in, in the first chapter how this story opens and Nehemiah's response to bad news from Jerusalem And you see something of his burden for the honor of God, for the good of God's people, for the building of the kingdom, if you want to say it that way. Nehemiah 1, starting with verse 2. That Hanani, one of the brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and mourned certain days, and fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. 
I see a man here who's broken before God for the needs of man, and he identifies with the weaknesses and sins of his own people. Other great men of God in the Bible did that, like Moses. And this this man, Nehemiah, here is weeping and fasting and praying and saying, we're in this deplorable spiritual circumstance because of our sin. And our, our lack of attention to the details of the Word of God, the will of God. This is what got us here. And I want to say tonight, brethren, almost all of you are ministers. I know maybe a few aren't, but most of you are. If you and I want to see God work in the areas of where we're called to serve, the attitude of Nehemiah's heart is indispensable. Our money, our, our mechanisms, our methods, our programs are not going to do what it takes. We need to humble ourselves before God, first of all for our personal need. And to make sure that in my life there is not standing between me and God that which impedes blessing. And that almost me tonight just to say that. If we want to build with gold, silver, and precious stone, we have to start with an attitude of repentance for the lack of fruitfulness and the lack of success in the efforts of God's people. I think if there will be regrets in heaven for those of us that get to heaven, that likely one of the chief ones will be what could have been accomplished had we been closer to God. And if we'd have had a greater sensibility of the needs slash opportunity that God put in our way. It's, it, I hear so many people complain about the spiritual circumstances they're in or the people they need to work with. And I remember an, an old mentor of mine who said this. He said, if you're in a Sunday school class and it's boring, do something about it. Uh, you, it's your responsibility to make it a live class. Is, is the need of the church, is the need of the hour, our opportunity. That if we would humble ourselves before God, then maybe God could do something. Maybe God's waiting until I bow and weep and fast and pray. This was a righteous man. I believe he was a cut above the average of, of the Jews he was fellowshipping with. And yet it, it, he made it his business to humble himself before God. Uh, it's a good place to start if we want to avail ourselves of an opportunity. I actually believe China, America, Canada, Central America, South America, Asia, we can't be in all those places but I do believe God has a ministry for every person who will humble themselves before God. That's, that's a big key. And Nehemiah did that. 
I also see that Nehemiah was committed to God first. I don't know how he got elevated to be the cupbearer of the king. Uh, we have more of the story how it happened in Daniel and his three friends' experience, some of the obstacles that God helped him overcome miraculously to to serve in the kingdom. I'm not sure how it was with Nehemiah, but at this critical moment, when he had access to the king's presence, and he had position, and he had wealth, and though things could be really fickle in those countries and you're standing, I mean, if the king decided to not like your looks some morning, your head could fly and there wasn't going to be any court of appeal. So I don't know about security, but uh, he, he did have a pretty good spot. And if he wanted to protect that spot, one of the last things he wanted to do was do what he did. Now, the king noticed that he was sad, but if you notice these scriptures carefully, you notice that Nehemiah determined that he was going to use the opportunity of his position to do something about Jerusalem, even before the king saw his sad countenance. Look at the last verse of chapter 1. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the man, the king, for I was the king's cupbearer. And so he knew what he was going to do. The kingdom of God was first. And then we see how that worked out in the following verses in chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? When the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire, then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make requests? So I pray to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king and of thy servant, have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And Nehemiah put himself on the line. <laughs> he was committed. You know, just uh, just here the other night we had a men's meeting in our district and we talked about needs of missionaries for Guatemala and also for boys' camps work. And, you know, you almost see the wheels turning in people's heads because if you're going to go serve in somewhere outside your home area, whether it's a couple hours or whether it's a couple countries away, you're going to interrupt business. You're going to interrupt jobs. You're going to interrupt family ties. Um, Nehemiah was interrupting the possibility of his neck. I really think so. 
you know, he, he was asking something dangerous here. But one brother spoke up and he said, well, you know, he really, I really think where this starts is, he said that each of us would ask God, what would it take for me to be able to go? He was dead on. I mean, we all say that everyone should be willing to give up everything we have to God. That's very easy to say. Did you ever mean it? Would you sell your... I, I know someone right now, and you know people like this, but I know someone right now, more or less my age, who's selling out almost totally. I'm not saying they're not keeping Grandpa's old clock. I don't know, but they're selling most of their stuff, and he's going to end up, Lord willing, in Peru. Uh, I don't believe God wants everyone to do that, but I believe everyone wants... God wants all his followers to be all for Christ. <laughs> and whatever he asks us to do, whatever that is, we should have everything on the line. And again, just like brokenness in God's sight, in order for us to avail ourselves of the opportunity, we must have the sentence of death in our life. It takes a lot of pressure out of life in arguing with God once, once we come to that. If, in fact, if it literally has happened to you sometime, that's not a bad thing either. If you ever had the, a point in your life where you didn't know if you was going to live because of something you needed to do for God, that's a good experience. Because once you've decided in real time that you will die for God, it does something to, to your heart. But whether you have ever had the opportunity to do that or not, there are plenty of opportunities where we have to choose between self and God. And the kingdom of God, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I believe though it was an Old Testament experience, Nehemiah was doing that here. He was saying, the good of Jerusalem, the good of my people, before my position, before my life even. And we know from the story that God helped him find favor with the king, and the king ordered him to go, and and even gave him an expense account, I believe, and and allowed Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem and work on the problem of a city that was burned and in rubble and in disrepute. But when Nehemiah got there, as is often the case, not every, if, if you want to serve God wholehearted, not everyone's going to be impressed. Did you ever know that? There may be some people that wish you God's blessing, but other people may not be so much in favor. In fact, you may well discover some opposition from your own congregation sometimes or your own family. In fact, when it comes to sending missionaries afar, one of the greatest roadblocks to foreign missionaries is their relatives. The people who say, well, you better pay your house off first. Or, uh, no, I was planning on you taking over the farm. Or whatever whatever the comments are. Or we don't think you're mature enough yet. Or, well, I don't know. But 
In my case, and you'll say, yeah, they were right, they say he's too idealistic. But anyway, um, not everyone was impressed with Nehemiah showing up. He had some real-time enemies and people who didn't want to see Jerusalem reestablished and the walls rebuilt. And one of the one of the weapons they used against him was just trying to discourage him. You know, scorn, ridicule. This won't work. Can't be done. Chapter two, verse nineteen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the the servant and the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, "What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king?" And I want to be understood here this evening. I think I think we do need to be careful with just my own private opinion and vision. Uh, I believe God does many times call through the church and through faithful brethren giving us counsel. But once we have the conviction and confirmation that something is God's will, and, and we have the peace and the surety that we're within God's will in our vision, and Nehemiah had a vision, and he believed in his heart that that vision was from God. It was God's work. It, you know, the time was up, the years that God had specified that his people needed to be in captivity. It was God's timing for Jerusalem to be built. <coughs> Excuse me, and he was sure of that. Uh, his vision wasn't going to be stopped by scorn and ridicule. And... Uh, Someone has said that a leader is a monomaniac with a magnet in the heart and a compass in their head. The heart is pulled toward the vision and the mind is directed toward the vision. They're going to go that way because they, they, they're convinced. And again, I would caution against, you know, the counsel of others and so forth, going against that always if it's our church or whatever. But if we know it's God's will, those enemies of God's purposes, and that's, that's why it's so important to co-labor with God and then go ahead. One thing that impressed me about Nehemiah was how he used other people. And I'm not going to take the time to read it. Besides, it's a bunch of names I can hardly pronounce. But chapter 3 is full of all the different family lines and people, uh, different priestly families and, and tribal families who uh, each took a portion, a, a gate or a portion of a wall. And I was noticing somewhere in, in your literature you in response to these meetings, you're talking about the young people who are the leaders of tomorrow. And one thing that's always impressed me is the willingness of young people to sacrifice and serve God if they're men who will lead them, who will show the way. And that needs to be you, brethren. Uh, and Nehemiah did that. You know, these people, these people were there before, many of them. But they weren't getting the job done because they were discouraged. The work was cast down. It was dead, so to speak. 
Here comes a man with a vision and a passion for it, and he didn't need to work alone. There were many, many, many people who, and that's uh, that's the work of God at its best when the when the people of God move together as a body because they've caught the vision, caught the opportunity. Someone needs to show the way, and someone needs to believe that God can equip. And blesses the leader who is convinced that he's not the only person that can do the job. Uh, God, I just heard a young man preach on Sunday morning. Uh, I was the one called to ordain him some years ago. And I confess that I, I had a little bit of reservation about him being in the lot for ordination. The reason being that I knew he knew his Bible some, and, and I knew that in many ways he was a faithful Christian character, but he seemed to be really halting in his speech. And, you know, the Bible does say apt to teach, right? And I, But I thought, well, it's good enough, and other brethren were in favor, so we left him go through the lot, and he was ordained. Well, you wouldn't know anything about halting of speech today. He had a very forceful message. And, and I thought about God's ability to equip a man. You don't know what a man can do in the ministry until God has gifted him. And, uh, and so if we want to make the most of opportunities, we have to trust what God can do in other brethren to get the job done. And Nehemiah did that. I don't have any accurate way of knowing how many hundreds or thousands contributed to this work. But once he got the ball rolling, so to speak, there were many, many who got involved. Well, the opposition went from scorn to even more serious. And there will always be opposition to God's opportunities. Because there is the enemy of our souls, there's the devil. There's also people who don't want to be changed, who don't want to do the right thing. There are those who are not wholehearted, want to be involved, but don't really have their whole heart surrendered to God. There's always opposition. And, of course, the most serious opposition is the resistance in men's hearts, to do as our brother mentioned, humble themselves before God and be changed. That's always there. And I want you to see with me how Nehemiah handled opposition. In chapter 4, verse 6, So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together into the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. But it came to pass that when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and said he watched against them day and night. Because of them. 
and so they they cried out to God and they took needed precautions and they pushed ahead. And I in our opportunities to build the kingdom of God, whether it's local um, passing out literature, jail work, um, retirement centers, working with different needs of people, addicts, whatever, emotionally disturbed people, or whether it's boys' camps or whether it's foreign missions. One of my concerns is a fallacy that is sometimes found in the circles of conservative Anabaptist people. I really personally feel this is a heresy. I'm going to tell you what it is. The concept that our job is only to witness and the rest is God's business. What is true that only God can convert a soul. No man can come to Christ except the Father draw him. I understand that. But I also understand that God wants us to co-labor with him in the agony of travailing prayer and concern and burden until the sheaves can be carried in. And so when we have those jail services or when we have that boys camp or when we... uh, do Well, I don't know. Mennonites are doing everything today from giving out seeds to Bibles to building latrines and well, digging wells. I mean, and hey, all of it's better than buying a yacht on the river. I'm, I'm not trying to slam any of that. But in all our activities, if we could have the burden that these contacts that we're making, these opportunities that we're developing, that we want to see these people saved... We want to see them converted. We don't want them just to see Jesus. We want them to experience Jesus. And there will never really be gold, silver, and precious stones unless we get through to that. You know, we want people just to get to eternity and say, Well, I saw Jesus when, when this group of young people came and sang on our streets. But I don't know. I just never... Yeah. And maybe part of it was our fault. And it's hard for us to believe sometimes. I was just thinking about this 13-year-old black girl in our Saturday morning markets that my wife and I do, and some of my daughters sometimes. Um, she likes to come around and help us roll out pretzels and just, well, I think she likes to eat them, but... Uh, <laughs> But she's a friend of my daughter, and she come and she, you know, her mother's a Jehovah's Witness. The this, the called dad of the house is not her dad. You can understand that. How that's much the way society is. The brother comes along as a half brother. And the other day it dawned upon me. You know what? You talk religion sometime in front of this girl, and. Uh, but do you really believe she could be converted? And I was struck with the conviction that instead of just once in a while saying something about Jesus, I really ought to get serious about interceding for this girl's soul. 
And, and with me, I'll start with me, I think so many times that's, that's the vision that's lacking in our opportunities. That we would strive to overcome the opposition. See, that girl has an enemy that never wants her to be saved. That wants her to be a repeat social casualty. A repeat sin casualty. And I'm well aware that we can't use the same methods the world over. There's some places you can't go plant a church in the way we do, for instance, in Guatemala. There are places you probably can't even get into unless you're doing something like teaching English or or digging a well or something. The, the, the circumstances vary the world over. But what does not vary is, is that there will always be spiritual opposition against the conversion of people. And I, I'm going to say this tonight. I, I think I'm right on this based on, on the scriptures that I won't take time to read out of the New Testament. But I believe that God has called us to be agents of conversion of people out of the prison cells of the devil into the kingdom of God. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what Jesus said. He said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of every people group. That's paraphrased, but that's what it's saying. I want you to make disciples of every people group. I want you to baptize them and teach them to live a God-honoring, Jesus-like Christian life. That's the entirety of the Great Commission. Make disciples of people, get them baptized, and teach them to live like Jesus. And then there are gold, silver, and precious stones in the house of our God. And it's going to take some pushing, praying until something happens many times. And, and not just praying, but targeting people with love and concern and interest, visiting, sacrifice of time and energy. So let's see who can be saved. And I noticed how Nehemiah had the attitude the attitude of sacrifice in his life. Now, he already was sacrificing when he was willing to go before the king and say, well, I don't know if he had a plan what he was going to say. The first thing the king saw was he said his face, but he knew he was going to do something. But then when he got over there, apparently, and we could read that here in Nehemiah, the, the governors that predated Nehemiah had lived off the backs of the people. They, they were the king's people, and so they had a right to take taxes or a quota or, or whatever. But the taxation upon a conquered people was already a real burden on them. They could hardly make it. In fact, if you read carefully Nehemiah, you see that people were selling their sons and daughters as slaves to try to make up the taxation. 
And then these so-called governors in their favor were making it even worse, taking some more. When Nehemiah came, he fed 150 people out of his own wallet. And that kind of proves he had a pretty wealthy salary back there in, in his kingdom. But he had 150 of the Jewish people under his own care, and he did not tax the local people for it. Now, all I'm trying to say that is that people who have a vision for the opportunities that God gives them are people who are willing themselves to sacrifice. And it's not always money. I mean, it can include money. But so many times, if you work with people, you know this is true. It's, this is true, a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of emotional energy, a sacrifice of vulnerability. Because sometimes the people you love the most stab you. And, and then you have the opportunity to either become cynical or keep on loving. I think it was David who said, for my love they are my enemies. And you don't win every case. But uh, by the grace of God, he does give us fruit. And that's such a blessing. I don't know, we really have it good in the United States and Canada. We, we can earn our living with time left over. We can earn our living, take care of our families, and still be able to travel and to serve. But the downside to that is we are sort of adverse to pain and lack of sleep. You know, praying half a night's almost something more than we can handle. Uh, getting up early in the morning to do something special for God or late at night. or I'm not faulting you, brother, at all, because I probably would have fell asleep if I'd have been here this afternoon. But putting up with a whole afternoon of sitting through meetings, you know, real suffering for us, isn't it? Uh, Poor fellas. But no, that, you know, we really think we sacrifice, do we? I mean, but if you want to really make the most of opportunity, we have to learn to give of ourselves deeply. And so many times we're not willing to suffer. And you cannot do the work of the ministry without suffering. You're going to have to suffer misunderstandings. You're going to have to suffer the weaknesses and failures of others. You're going to have to suffer what it means to give your best and not have it appreciated and just go ahead and do your best for the next person. You're going to have to be willing to suffer that. And the people who start to draw back from suffering are the people who don't get much done with the opportunities that come their way. And sacrifice, it kind of goes together, sacrifice and suffering. Sometimes it's giving up food, which is a tough one for me. Uh, sometimes it's giving up time. Sometimes it's giving up sleep. Sometimes it's giving up our personal priorities for the sake of others, for the sake of the cause. 
Well, I already said in this message that we're called to build upon Jesus Christ. And Nehemiah was true to the the purity of the doctrine. He was not an ecumenical man. He was not trying to build a seeker-friendly religious club. He wanted the true house of God in Jerusalem. Uh, the purity of the faith. Uh, I see time is getting short, so if you would just... I'm not going to read it, but in chapter 6... And the first part of that chapter, the next tactic the enemies tried was they wanted to be part of this. They, they wanted to get involved. So let's work together. And I, I don't think Nehemiah would have been against them working together if those people would have been willing to become true worshipers of Jehovah and meet, meet the same standards he was trying to live by. But he wasn't willing to compromise the purity of his faith in Jehovah in order to avoid opposition. And he basically had to tell them that they didn't have part in this matter. Well, I want to close with with Nehemiah teaching the purity of God's word in those days. In chapter 8, verses 1, 6, and 8. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Now folks, as has always been the case, lamentably so, a true revival doesn't last endless generations. But this revival did have a tremendous impact for a number of generations. In fact, at least in the area of idolatry and mixed marriages, it did a tremendous amount of curing for generations to come. And Nehemiah was faithful in that, uh, calling out the leaders who had corrupted themselves with marriages outside of God's people, in calling the rich folks to stop making slaves out of their brethren, in calling for a true worship back to Jehovah's standard, he did that. And so it wasn't just the building of the walls. It was the reestablishing of God's principles in the midst of his people. And I want to say tonight, when we talk about opportunities, and there's no way that you and I can ever take availability of all of them. In, in our society of the United States and Canada, and the, the countries out there, as well as within our own countries, the things we can do to advance the kingdom of God, we're going to have to cock our ear in God's direction and say, where in your work do you want me? Because we can't do it all. But within what God calls us to do, there is no greater 
gospel work in kingdom building. There's no greater social good. There's no better way to be sure that you're building with gold, silver, and precious stones than to help someone become another faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose that would be my plea with you tonight. Don't don't stop with saying, well, I spoke of Jesus today. Don't stop with digging a well. Don't stop with whatever you're doing in the name of Jesus. That I believe testifying for Christ is of value in itself. I'm not saying it's not. But the greatest social good. Look, I don't know what your last name is tonight, but if you're not a first generation Anabaptist, I want to tell you what you are. You are the ongoing social benefit as well as spiritual benefit of someone who evangelized your forefathers. And the benefits are still being felt and experienced yet tonight. Somewhere way back the line, most of my background is Evie and Martin. But there were unchurched Evies and Martins. And someone did the greatest social good that could ever be done when they helped lead the first one of them to Jesus Christ. I understand that each of us need to make our own decision. But you understand what I mean, how that goes from generation to generation. We have a, we have a brother who's a bishop in the churches there in Guatemala and I've told this story many times because it just it, it makes it so clear to me. I may have even told it here in missions conference. So what? You forgot. I'll tell you again. Um, I was, one Sunday morning, I went visiting before the Sunday morning service with him, and we were walking down this dusty street, and there was this man lying drunk and semi-unconscious in the ditch. And he said, that's my uncle. And so... Yeah, okay, so it's your uncle now. I thought, well, what about your dad? And so I asked him. He said, well, my dad died that way. And I said to him, I said, your children don't know anything about that, do they? He said, no. And, you know, recently uh, one of his um, sons married uh, Vernon Martin's daughter. And so, you know, it's another generation. In fact, his mother became a Christian, so it's three generations now. Once you start the process of Christianity and lead a soul out of that vicious cycle of sin and social misfits and get that thing broken and get it going God's way, there is no greater opportunity than that one. God bless you.